Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Good morning again. Um, we're in this uh, sermon series entitled Facets of Faith, where we're looking at faith from different directions in the, in the lives of people that are in the Bible. And uh, we, we had talked about Noah and talked about obedient faith, that the faith leads us to obey God. Uh, we talked last week about Abraham and a visionary faith, how faith enables us to see uh, things that we would never see, understand things we would never understand. Did we not choose to place our faith in the Lord and go forward with him? And that brings us today to what we talk about as desperate faith, Okay. Uh, so if you can go ahead and, yeah, there we go. Desperate faith. Now, when I, when I uh, work on the sermons I, and I have some concept that I'm wanting to talk to you about, I always try to think, now, what have I experienced in my own life? Uh, whether it's directly related or not, though, but that, that connects with this. And, and I, I don't know why it, this came to mind, but when I start thinking of being desperate, desperation, what came to my mind is... Uh, some things that some of you would already be aware of about me. Um, how many of you know that I am not a fan of spiders? <laughs> a bunch of you know that, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, if, if the spider's there, that's fine, as long as he's where I think he ought to be, you know? Uh, they don't belong in my house, right? Uh, my mother used to catch spiders and take them outside and release them. I think that's insane. Sorry, Mom. Uh, but I think, you know, you know, you kill spiders. But anyway, so I'm not a fan of spiders. The, in certain times, situations, it really, I don't do well with that. And another thing I'm not a fan of is haunted houses. How many of you are with me on that? Oh, good. I'm not the only one. I'm not a big fan of haunted houses, okay? So when my wife and I are dating, she wants to go to a haunted house. And back in the day, I wasn't as opinionated about such things. <laughs> Maybe this event I'm going to tell you about has something to do with how that changed. I don't know. But uh, we went to a haunted house. And, and think about this. I'm not a fan of spiders, and I'm not a fan of haunted houses. Can you imagine that I'm really not a fan of spiders and haunted houses together? <laughs> I'm not. So we went to this haunted house, and it wasn't like some were big and elaborate. This wasn't that big and elaborate, but they had us going through this narrow dark hallways, and you'd come up right here, and there's an aquarium, and guess what's in the aquarium that in the hallways is big? It's a, one of them big, fuzzy tarantulas. Oh, I'm not doing well. Another one, another one. They're down the hall, and then they had, you know, little fuzzy things attached to the walls, you know? So I, I start moving faster. <laughs> I'm in front of Glenn, and I start going, going, and, and I turn this corner, and a room opens up, and there's this huge spider with long arms, and it reaches out for me. Can you say desperation? I was desperate. I cannot, the word desperate means to lose hope in a way that leads to despair and sometimes rash decisions. Well, I made a rash decision at that moment as those things, I don't remember, I think they had to repair the haunted house 
because I think I broke off those things as I ran across the room and out the other side and got out of that place. And Glenda was on her own as far as I was concerned. <laughs> but a feeling of desperation, that, that's kind of a silly thing, right? But sometimes in life, and I've had other times in life where it wasn't that kind of silliness, but where I found myself feeling really desperate. You know, what's going on here? I don't know how to deal with this. I'm, I don't see any way out of, you know, I, mean, I don't see any good ending here. Uh, starting to feel a sense of despair. And, uh, you know, of course, wanting to avoid rash decisions in those, those times and places. But I, probably all of us have felt that at some time or another, haven't we? Have you ever felt a sense of despair at one point or another? That can really work against us. But today what we want to see is, is that maybe, just maybe, we can let it work for us. As we talk about desperate faith. And so the person we want to look at today is Jacob. So let's take our Bibles and turn to the book, excuse me, the book of Genesis chapter 25. We encourage you to follow along with us in, the, uh, in your own Bible, or if you don't have your own Bible, there should be a Bible under the chairs there in front of you. And uh, we're going to be on, uh, start on page 26 and work our way from there. Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to start in verse 21. Now we talked about Abraham last week, and, and his God gave him his son Isaac and all that Abraham went through with that and the faith that God built in him. And now this is stories about Isaac. He's been around and now he is having children. So verse 21 of chapter 25, page 26 says, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. So... What does that mean? I'm not sure, but I think there was this uneasiness and the movement and how she was feeling. And she didn't know she was having twins yet. Anybody here ever have twins? You did? No, you didn't have twins. You're male. Okay. Um, but anyway, so she didn't know she was having twins. And there was no ultrasound, okay, to find out. But it says this, but, so, but the children struggle together within her. She said, if, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Now that might scare you, right? Two nations. Obviously, he isn't talking about, he's going to talk about two destinies that are going to come from the children in your womb. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now that was unusual, okay? Uh, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll pick up on that in a little bit. But so she finds out she's having two children and that she's already getting a sense of what their destinies are going to be. Verse 24, so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb and the first came out red he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Now, Esau sounds just like, okay, that's, that's a name, I get that, but you know what Esau means? Hairy. <laughs> so the kid comes out, very hairy, and with red hairs, as it turns out, but anyway, they call him Harry. all right, Esau. Afterwards, so Esau's the firstborn, Esau's the first of the twins to come out, 
And so they're fraternal twins. They're not identical twins. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, uh, this seems kind of strange. took hold of Esau's heel. I, I don't really know for sure what that looks like. I don't know if, if as he was being born, his hand came out, he, his hand went over and, and, you know, went wrapped on Esau's heel, or if it laid them down together right afterwards, and somehow or other his hand gets down there by Esau's heel. But to them, this idea of grabbing a heel was a wrestling move. It was how you would take somebody down, see? You grab the heel. And so they name him Jacob. Guess what Jacob means? Heel grabber, literally. Or the idea of supplanter, taking somebody down, okay, taking away. So uh, he gets this name about himself, and um, it implies scheming. It implies conniving. It implies manipulating to take somebody else down. Now, I don't know why you'd name your kids that, but they, they did. I mean, you know, it's, sometimes we, we, we give little kids, you know, funny teachers, you know, here comes trouble, right? Well, what if you just named them that? <laughs> here comes trouble. <laughs> All right. That's sort of what they were doing. Verse 27, so the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. So uh, as they said, they're probably older teenagers now, and the way they're, they're going in life, Esau is, is an outdoorsman, okay? He's a hunter. He, he's, he's, you know, that he's at home out there uh, in nature like that. Uh, but Jacob likes to stay in the house. Jacob likes to do things with his mom. We might call him, and I don't mean this in a, a, a derogatory way, but sort of a mama's boy, okay? Uh, that's where he, he uh, felt most at home, most comfortable. So we get to a story here uh, that's really crucial to what's going on and what's going to go on. It says, now Jacob cooked a stew. Now that would make sense, right? He's hanging around the house. He's a cook. Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. So Esau and his descendants began to be called Edom. And the reason for that is because Edom means red. And so he probably has red hair. Now he says, I want some of that red stew. And so he ends up being known as Edom or red. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. Who was the oldest? Esau. Esau was born for even though born more or less at the same time. Esau is the firstborn. So let's, let's talk about this, the birthright. Uh, there's two concepts that we need to understand. One is birthright and one is blessing. Uh, the birthright was given under almost all circumstances to the firstborn son. And the birthright meant that he would be the next head of the household, okay? So when dad passes off the scene, he will be the head of the household. If there's a family business, he will be head of the family business. He is responsible for maintaining the household and the properties. He is responsible for overseeing the care of his mom, 
It's his father's widow, any other siblings who might be at home. He is given that responsibility to be the head of the household. Now, in addition to that, he is given a double portion of the inheritance. Now, so in this case, it would work like this. You have Esau being the firstborn and Jacob the secondborn. What they would do is when, when dad died, they would divide the inheritance in three ways. There's only two kids, but they would divide it three ways. And they would give the firstborn two parts and the youngest one part or one third. So the firstborn would get two thirds, okay? Now, there's a reason for that. It's because he's the one who has to take care of everybody and everything. So he gets double. That's the way the plan worked. But it was a place of honor, okay? You wanted to be honored. You wanted to be the firstborn. That was a privileged place, a place that people might look up to you for as, as having the birthright. Okay, and that's what we're going to see as we go on the story here. But there's another thing that, the, that was also given, usually to the firstborn, and that was the father's blessing. The father would give a very specific blessing uh, to his firstborn about you know, what he was going to experience in life, what his role was going to be, maybe what God was going to do through him, all of these kinds of things. And so that is something also that was highly valued. And what's interesting in this culture is that the father's blessing was viewed almost as a binding contract. Now, in our day and age, just because dad told you hey, listen, you're going to have a great life. You're going to be a powerful person in the community. You're going to be creative and do some things. You're going to grow wealthy, and you're going to have a good, strong family, right? How binding do you, you and I feel like that would be today? Would that guarantee anything? No. But in their day and age, they believed this. If, if the father said it, it was almost as though God himself had said it. That's the way they looked at it. And so the blessing really, really mattered to people, Okay? That firstborn wanted that blessing. All right, so let's go back to our story here. So Jacob has made some red stew. Esau has come in from the field very hungry, wants some red stew, but verse 31, but Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. In other words, when dad dies, I will be treated like the firstborn. I will get the double inheritance. I will be the head of the household. So what is Jacob trying to do here? Take advantage of his brother's situation. He knows his brother. I think he knows how to work him. But so sell me your birthright. He's conniving. He's living up to his name, isn't he? He's scheming. He's going to try to take his brother's heel in a sense and pull him down and then replace him. All right, that's what he's trying to do. Verse 32, and Esau said, look, I'm about to die. You think that's an exaggeration? Any of your kids ever tell you that when they wanted to eat? At least they acted like it. Look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? What do I need that for? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised or devalued his birthright. So this is going to um, come back to haunt Jacob at another point in the future. But he is, he's a schemer. He is a conniver. All right, let's go over to chapter 27. All 
And let's start in verse number one. It says, now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered him, here I am. Then he said, behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now, what's interesting is Isaac lives for 40 more years. But at this point in time, he thinks I could go any day. Any of you ever felt that way? Right? Okay. Um, Verse 3, now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So here, Isaac, the father of Esau, is saying, it's time for me to give you the blessing, right? The coveted blessing. Verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. And Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. And we're not going to read through the rest of this, but what, what uh, Jacob's uh, mother, Rebecca, has done here, she is figuring out how to steal the blessing from Esau. Remember, Isaac loved Esau, and uh, Rebecca loved Jacob. Now, I didn't talk about it at the time, but do you see how that is a recipe for dysfunction <laughs> in a home? Okay, and sometimes people have you know kids that they're maybe more in tune with, right? But but you gotta love them all the same way, or at least with the same depth of love, I should say. Uh, so anyway, but she schemes here with Jacob, and they figure out how to fool his father. Remember, he's old. He says he can't see now, so they're gonna trick him, and and so they do this whole thing where. Uh, she cooks a meal for him. It's not game, but they try to make it taste like game, and they put, whatever, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. They deceive Isaac, and Isaac finally gives the blessing to Jacob. Okay? In fact, let's, let's look over here, verse 27. Let's see how this, what this blessing was like. Verse 27, and he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his clothing, Isaac, who he thought was Esau's clothing, because Jacob was wearing Esau's clothes. And he blessed him and said, here's the blessing, surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your who? Brethren. And let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. And so this was the blessing of the firstborn that Isaac gave mistakenly to Jacob. Now, once again, in our culture, our day and age, we'd think, oh, well, when we figured out this wasn't Jacob, we just start over, Right? Can't be bound to that. It wasn't Jacob. But no, that isn't the way it worked. Again, their belief was when the father pronounced this blessing, it was fixed. It was settled. It could not be taken away. This was God's doing. It's the way they viewed it. All right? How do you think Esau is going to feel about this? 
Right after this, Esau comes in and starts talking to his father. I made, got the game, and here you go. And, and dad goes, what? Wait a minute. I've already given. And, and they realize that Jacob has deceived them. And that Jacob has taken the blessing, stolen the blessing. Okay? And, and this is a big problem, obviously. Verse 36. It says, and Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? What's Jacob mean? Heel grabber, or the idea of taking someone down to take their place. Conniver, schemer, manipulator. Isn't he rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me, taken my place these two times. He took away my birthright. And now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And so uh, Isaac basically says, no, I've already given the blessing to the firstborn. And he does give a blessing to, to Esau, but it's not the same kind of blessing. says he will be under his brother's authority. So how's this going to work? Verse 41. So Esau, what's the next word? Hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. They think he's about to die. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in, in Haran. And stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. A fat chance, right? Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself in the story here, but what we're going to discover is this, that Jacob has, you know, schemed and got the birthright, He's deceived and got the blessing. Now he's leaving. He has to run. And it's going to be 20 years before he's back. And he will not experience the birthright or the blessing. Maybe it's a good idea not to scheme and try to figure things out on our own and connive and manipulate. Might be a whole other sermon sometime. All right, so Jacob leaves. Uh, and while he's on the way, I want to show you how he, he works with his relationship with God and kind of what that was like. And so he has a, a dream and he sees angels going up and down on ladder and decides that this must be a, a holy place. And, and then in verse 20, he talks to God. Chapter 28, excuse me, chapter 28, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat, and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, God, I will surely give a tenth to you. I will tithe. I'll give you that 10%. Jacob's, consistent with his character, is making a deal with God. Okay, God, if you'll do what I want and what I think I need, then here's what I will do for you. Um, you and I would never do anything like that, would we? 
Maybe not so blatantly, but we're quite capable of doing it, aren't we? Let me show you. I think that what we, as, as we, if, we, if we follow through and we don't have time to do it and looked at, at Jacob's interactions with God throughout his story, and at least the part we're going to consider today, we see that Jacob is including God in his life. He's including God. Jacob's handling everything. He's got it all figured out. How I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. You know, he's manipulating, he's scheming, he's conniving, he's, he's, he's uh, you know, just working extra hard, he's doing all that kind of stuff, but, but he wants to include God. And he includes God along the way. Let me say to you that including God is self-deception. Because God will not be included. It's a total misunderstanding. If you really understand who God is, what he's like and what that means, there's no way in the world you say, well, God, I'm going to include you in my plans. I'm going to include you in what I'm doing. That's like, it's just, it doesn't make sense. You're deceiving yourself. And here's the deal. Uh, um, Including God is self-deception that leads to self in trouble. Now, I made up that term. But we know it. We get it, right? And so when you in your life, when you have God in this nice place, you're trying to keep him there, um, and you include him. Because, well, I'm a Christian, and I make sure I include God here. You're fooling yourself. You're not in the right place with God. And, and you're just going to cause yourself trouble. It's not going to do what you think for you. Now, I'd like to just kind of chase something here for a little bit, if I can, and say this to you. Um, you know, I would say that, you know, if, if, we, if we could get a list of everybody who attends our church, and, and we could look and see... I. I I could tell you that there are people who would consider this to be their church, but you hardly ever see them. And I'm not thinking of anybody specific, okay? I'm not making that judgment. I'm thinking in general terms. Someone who can say that uh, this is their church and they're just here on rare occasions and, and they go about their life, and that they are probably including, trying to include God in their lives. And that doesn't just apply to people who maybe aren't here. It could apply to us as well. That could be the very reason that you're here today. Because you're trying to make sure that you, you keep God in the mix. That you include him. But here's the thing. If you can, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, keep God in this nice, neat place and live the rest of your life on your own. If you can do that ongoing, I think you probably ought to rethink whether or not you actually have a saving relationship with him. That's kind of a tough thing to say. But do you understand what I mean? Because God isn't an include me God. God is God. He is overall. He, he should be in the center of all. He is, um, and when you come to know him, he profoundly changes you on the inside. So that if you find yourself, you're just including God, that is going to trouble you. 
You're going to, ah, you know, it's going to be a continual tug of war. And if you aren't experiencing that tug of war, you may not have genuinely received Christ as Savior. See, the Bible talks about this faith that, that saves us. In fact, back up, James says, he says, if you have a faith that doesn't affect your life, if you have a faith that doesn't affect how you live and what you do, he, he asks the question, he says, can that kind of faith save you? And he says, it can't. The kind of faith that saves you includes repentance, where you realize the way I have been living my life is not God's way. I'm doing my own thing. That's not God's way. I am lost because of it. I need a Savior. Jesus died for me. Pay the penalty for my sins rose again. And right now, I'm, man, I'm turning away from all my own ways of handling all this stuff. I'm turning away from it, and I'm turning to God. And when you receive Christ as Savior that way, it just so changes you that you can't just live day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, just including God. You come to the conclusion, Jesus is Lord. And so here's my challenge to you about this thought. Don't include God in your life. You know, if somebody just took that phrase and put it on Twitter today, Pastor Wall says, don't include God in your life. What's going on there? Well, don't include God in your life. Instead, start with God, continue with God, and finish with God. Beginning to end. So his life and your life and his ways, it's all intertwined. You can't separate it. You get up today and it's, your life is about living for the Lord. Whatever it is he has for you today, but it's, that's what it's about. It's not about I'm doing my thing today and on Sunday I go do God's thing. That's not how God intends for the Christian life to be. It's not what you were made for. You're made for something much higher and greater. All right, so let's go back to our story. All right, let's see here. Chapter 32. We are into one of the strangest, we're going to be into one of the strangest parts of the whole Bible today. Chapter 32. So Jacob has been in um, away now for 20 years. He has worked for his mother's brother, for his uncle Laban. He's worked for him. And Laban... <laughs> We've seen how Jacob is, what his personality is like, right? Well, Laban is Jacob on steroids, okay? And it's just, it isn't, you know, Jacob schemes, Laban schemes more. And finally, like one of the complaints that comes up is that Jacob says, you've changed my wages 10 times. And, you know, he just keeps, Laban has really tried hard to work to make sure that he's the one who's profiting off of Jacob, trying to keep Jacob from getting ahead. Now, in God's sovereignty, guess who gets ahead? Jacob does. Laban is not happy with this, and there's dissension and problems. And so finally Jacob says, i, I got to leave. Look, Laban is not happy with me. Laban is not a good man. Laban could hurt me. He could kill me if he wants. I, I have to leave. Now this is starting to become, a, even though it's only the second time, it's almost like a common theme in Jacob's life, right? I have to leave because somebody might do me harm, might kill me. And so he takes off and leaves without telling Laban. And so uh, Jacob is married to two of Laban's daughters. Uh, yeah, that sounds strange, but okay. Um, and so Laban follows after them, chases them down. He intends to do harm to Jacob. 
But God appears to him in a dream and says, don't you do anything to Jacob. And Laban listens. So the end result is that they reach an agreement. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's tense, uh, but they reach an agreement. They set up a, 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 a pillar, a boundary. And the idea is that neither one of us will cross over this line to harm the other one. Okay? We're not separate. So Jacob, here's where Jacob finds himself. He left home. 20 years earlier, because he was, his brother planned to kill him. Now he's had to leave where he is now, headed back toward home, and he can't cross over this line or Laban might kill him. Where does he go? I would say to you that life is starting to get desperate for Jacob because of how he has lived. Um, all right, so let's see. So he is on the way back now. Chapter 32 and verse 6. Uh, Jacob had sent messengers out to see if he could find where Esau was at and what was going on. Verse 6. Then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he also is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. What does that sound like? He's brought the cavalry. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He was starting to get into this desperation. And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. So he's struggling with all of this stuff. And so he begins to make plans. He's going to run into Esau the next day, and he's, he just doesn't know what's going to happen. And so he starts figuring, okay, how can I, how can I do this? All right, I'll, I'll give him a bunch of livestock, and then I'll, I'll send some more, and I'll keep sending these gifts to him, and maybe he'll be happy enough with him that he won't, won't hurt me or my family. He's getting really desperate. Verse 22, he's, he's got everything ready. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. So the very last part, he's moved everything across, and now it's finally his family. He's moved them across and his personal possessions across this river. And then it says, and then Jacob was left alone. Jacob went back to the other side. And I, my sense is this, is that he is just at wit's end. I can't go back because of what I, what's happened and what I've done. I can't go forward. He's in desperate straits. Maybe he just wanted. Have you ever been where you just want to be left alone and at least to, maybe I can think about something, you know, leave. He's worn out. Verse 24, then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And we don't have a lot of details about this, but my sense is what happened is Jacob is back over here and now he is, um, you know, he's just overwhelmed, doesn't know what's going to happen. He's feared, we saw, we saw that, he's distressed. And then someone jumps him. Someone in the darkness jumps on him and begins to fight with him and wrestle with him. And I think Jacob's got to be like, really? <laughs> really? Now, what we discover, and I think in, in most of your Bibles there, Trance, if you look at this today, did they capitalize the word man in verse 24? Yeah, that's because what Jacob is going to discover is that this man is actually God in a human form. 
God is the one who has jumped. Jacob. God is bringing Jacob to the end of his rope. He is, he is distressed. He is in despair. He's uh, probably exhausted. And now God is going to wrestle him. And um, I don't know if you've ever wrestled uh, in any formal sense. Um, I know when I was in high school, I went out for wrestling for about a week. And I said, those people are crazy. And just the total conditioning. And then you would wrestle. And sometimes you'd wrestle and it looked like nobody moved for a minute or two. And at the minute or two, the whistle blows and you're exhausted. God is exhausting Jacob. He's bringing him to the place where he cannot possibly deal with anything in his own strength or do any more conniving, scheming, or manipulating. That's what God is doing to him. Verse 25, now when he, this God-man, saw that he did not prevail against him, could, could God have beaten Jacob wrestling? Duh, right? But he's not. He's matched the strength. He's because he's just pressing Jacob, pressing Jacob, pressing Jacob. And so what does he do now? He touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Wow. So God, they're wrestling, God reaches down and touches him. And his hip goes, boom, out of joint. Anybody here ever had a hip out of joint? I dislocated? Nobody? Yeah, well, that's a little different. All right, anyway, so apparently it's extremely painful. And what typically happens, you can't move your leg when it's dislocated like that. And so all of a sudden, Jacob, and I think it's at this point that Jacob figured out this ain't just no person. That's a supernatural thing that just happened. This is God. And we see a change in Jacob. Verse 26, and he, this God man, said, let me go for the day breaks. But he, Jacob, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. All right. Jacob's whole life, he has been the schemer. He's been the one to connive. He's been the one to manipulate. He's been the one to figure out, how can I make this work for me? And he's still trying to do that, right, with the gifts to Esau and trying to finagle all of these things. But all of a sudden, God finally brings him to the point where Jacob realizes something different. And that's that my only hope is God himself. I'm hanging on to you, God. It's all I've got. And I need you to bless me. That is a change for Jacob. Remember Jacob's earlier dealings with God? You do this, God, I'll do this. You do this, I'll do this. And now he says, oh God, I just need you. His desperation led him to faith in God. Let's read on. So he asked for a blessing. Verse 27, so he, God, said to him, what is your name? That's, that's kind of strange, right? And he says, Jacob, what's your name? Why would God say, what's your name? Doesn't God know his name? He knows his name, but he wants Jacob to remember his name. My name is Jacob. What does that mean? I'm the heel grabber. I'm the one who supplants other people. I'm the conniver. I'm the schemer. I'm the manipulator. That's me. God says we're going to change that. Verse 28. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. 
For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So God gives him a new identity. You are Israel. Israel means prince of God. And God is telling him, hey, you finally got to where you need to be. You have prevailed. Yeah, you wrestled with men. You wrestled with God. But now you prevail because you finally got to the place where you realize that, God, it's you I need. None of this other stuff. It's you I need. And then he asked God, so what's your name? <laughs> and God says, come on, do you really need to ask? And Jacob renames the place where he is called the face of God. I've seen the face of God. Um, just a, a, a couple of quick things here for you, important things. First one is this, that when you find yourself desperately wrestling with life, you may actually be wrestling with God. So he's wrestling with this man and doesn't know it's God, does he? It's one more circumstance in his life, and he doesn't realize it's God. Well, the same thing could happen to you. In fact, I would say to you that if you start finding yourself desperate in life, it may be that it's God you need to deal with. See, the only thing you desperately need in life is your relationship with God. Everything else is optional. Well, don't you need food to live? Nope. Don't you need money to pay your bills? Nope. Don't you need relationships, you know, so that you can feel some security in that? And, uh, nope. You need God and your relationship with Him. Because everything else flows out from there. You're either Jacob or you're Israel, see? And, and the idea is this. I think Matthew 6.33 says that seek first your food and your money and your relationships. Is that what it says? No. But seek first what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness, His ways. And he says, and all these other things that you need will be added to you. God will provide for you. He'll work. He'll take care of these issues. Your first concern, your first and foremost concern must always be your relationship with God and, and, and what He wants you to be doing. Um, and so, you see, when you come to places in life where you're feeling desperate, the reality may be that you need to settle some things with God. If you find yourself desperate in the area of money and to the point where you're, you're starting to make some rash decisions about it, you may say, wait a minute, stop, 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 wait a minute. God, have I yielded to you in this? You know, if I yielded my money to you and my dealings with it, I need to stop wrestling with you and yield these things to you and then you go with God in that area. And it's just, we're out of time, so I don't want to keep trying to elaborate on those things. Just let me, just let me say this to you. When you start feeling desperation in life, let it drive you to faith in God. Okay? Don't let it drive you to other rash decisions which will only make it worse. Turn to God. Put your faith in Him. Live like you're desperately dependent on the Lord. Because you are. You realize that, right? That's what Jacob finally realized. It's God I need. Everything else will fall into its rightful place when God has his rightful place in my life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and this story, Lord, that's kind of strange to us that you became a man and wrestled with Jacob. And yet, Lord, I pray that we will 
be like Jacob in the sense of realizing that it is you that we need. First, foremost, and before all else. That we would yield ourselves to you in that. And we'd let that lead us to make those practical decisions in life, Lord. To keep you first. Not to include you. But to let you be our all in all. Please teach us, show us, convict us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go out and live desperate for God this week.